Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Modern Lending Podcast, Season 3, Stories. Um, and I just got to give this gentleman, Matthew, a little bit of an introduction before we start. Um, so this is a little outside of my lane for the Modern Lending Podcast listeners. As you guys know, I'm normally right down the middle of mortgage sales, mortgage strategy, social media selling, um, deepening referral relationships. But I shared the stage with Matthew a while back at a mortgage conference. Um, and when you hear his story and realize why I was terrified to speak after him, uh, because as you know, in mortgage, life's hard. We deal with hard things. We have pressure. We have closing dates. We have people that, that, are, that we are responsible for. And it can be a lot. And we also know, looking into 2022, that we could be facing a pretty hard market. It could be facing uh, increased competition, margin compression, lack of inventory. It's going to be a hard year. The, the piper has to be paid, and it's coming, we believe, next year. So I have two episodes left of the entire season, and I wanted to bring on Matthew. Um, and so, Mikey, why don't you roll the intro, and we'll bring in my on and talk. Matthew, welcome to the show, man. Nice to see you. Nice, nice to, to hear you. you. Yeah. Happy holidays. Yeah, it is. I hope yours was wonderful. Of course. Uh, so, so Matthew, um, I, I've given away nothing of your story so far. So anybody who's listening goes, I don't know who this guy is, what, what's going on. Although they can see in your background, you know, you have the American flag. We have some stuff going on. Looks like a good bottle of whiskey up there. So, so give us your story real quick. You know, I know that you're, um, you know, you lived in, you grew up in Virginia and Kentucky. What's your story? So I guess, yeah, behind me, you know, living in Kentucky now, you got to like really uh, rock the bourbon bottle. So that's a lot of my collectibles up there. That's right. And, that's uh, right. But uh, so I, I was born in Virginia. My, my parents divorced when I was very young and and all of my family is actually from Kentucky. So I moved back here and and lived here all the way up until my sophomore year in high school. And then I lived, moved back with my dad in Virginia. So I kind of flip flop back and forth between here and Virginia, but um, Kentucky's home now. But Love it. So I was a ninth grader, a freshman in high school when, when September 11th happened. And, uh, you know, although I was, I was really young, I, I couldn't even do anything then. All I could do is just watch the war on the news. But I made it a point that it was my time to serve and give back to this country that, you know, although 15, 16 years old, like this country has given me so much. I mean, it's given me the freedom. It's given us all the freedom to go do what we want to do. Yep. And uh, I, I felt like watching the Twin Towers come down the Pentagon and, you know, like be attacked and all this stuff that like, okay, this is, this is my time to serve now. And um, so like, you know, for the next three years, I, I made that my, my focus, my priority. And when I turned 18, my senior year in high school, like I didn't need parental signatures. Like I had friends who joined the Marines who went in, you know, another friend who graduated a year early, you know, joined the Marines. And, you know, I, they weren't my, my first choice or, you know, I didn't really have any choices. I just wanted to serve. I wanted to go fight. And, um, the Marine Corps recruiter sold me. And then, um, <laughs> and of course the two friends that I, I graduated high school with, they ended up going to recruit training that Monday after a Friday. And so I spent a lot of time with them as we went through the late entry program and, 
as I mentioned, when I turned 18, I, I raised my right hands at the MEP station and, and I, yeah. I gave my oath and all I, all I needed to do was just graduate high school. And, um, that was, that was it for me, you know, and I, uh, looking back on that decision, I, I'm so blessed to make, make it at such an early age to join the Marines and especially knowing what happened to me and, and that, uh, like people always ask me, it's like, do you regret, would you go back and change anything? And the answer is no. Well, this is for everybody listening. You know, when when Matthew took the stage, he has a hashtag uh, and a and a and, a, and, a, and I just love it. And because you know, I don't know who this guy is, a Marine. You know, and I look down, and the hashtag under his name says "No legs, no vision, no problem." <laughs> so that's a pretty bold statement, my friend. You know, like I, I've learned um, early on, and you know, I'm sure I'll share a story, but through recovery and all this, is it's just. Like, like these are the cards that I've been dealt. Like sometimes you just got to learn and learn to live life through struggles and through discomfort and adversity because God doesn't give us a perfect path. This is, he tests you and he, he pushes you and challenges you and, you know, to see what kind of heart and what kind of fight you have in you. And not only that, being a Marine and learning to never quit and just move on, move forward. Um, you know, it's, uh, the best views always looking forward, you know, it's always putting one foot in front of the next to overcome whatever obstacle. And, you know, once that obstacle is behind you, you're just going to move on and see what's next. It's that's life. And, yeah, you know, I've learned that, that being comfortable in my own skin, learning to live life with no legs, like my legs aren't going to grow back. Like that's something I have to realize that, you know what, I've been given the opportunity to live this life, to walk down this, this detour, with prosthetics and I wear my prosthetics like you wear your shoes every morning. I put them on and every night I'll take them off. And, uh, and I've learned through it all that like wearing prosthetics, being visually impaired, being, you know, blind hundred percent, like it hasn't stopped me from living life. And there's still ways that I can get out there and do the things that I do. And from, you know, surfing to skydiving to hunting, to fishing, to Spartan races, to marathons, it's like, like these things, these injuries have never stopped me from just going out and living life. It's just, it's all about the mentality and the mindset that you have. So Matthew, what, ha- what happened in 2007 um, before you, when you got injured, what, what happened? So we were deployed to Haditha, Iraq, which was in Al-Anbar province in 2006. And, and during this time, this is when Iraq was hot. Al-Anbar province is probably the most dangerous province <laughs> and area in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, the unit that we relieved told us they felt bad for the situation we're getting involved in. And and from the first minute that we stepped onto our FOB, our base in the middle of town, we were constantly getting mortared. We were getting firefights over and over again to where the first 40 days on average, we had one casualty a day. And, and I, honestly, I think that extended out further than 40 days. But, you know, you, you learn to understand that war is real and war is not a video game to where you can pause and restart. Like we'd go on patrol and, and, and you kind of look to your brothers or, you know, to your left and right and understand, all right, unfortunately, like who's not coming back with Jeez. us, you know, and it was just, uh, you know, our mobile unit got hit so hard that they had to change out platoons, you know, the first three months that we were over in Iraq and, yeah. and it was just tough. You know, we were a, you know, a company of about 200 Marines. We were the main element out of our battalion. So we were in the, the hardest hit city in Haditha and, you know, no, a little less than 200 Marines, but in a town of maybe 45,000 people. So, you know, we had, all we had was each other. Yeah. And, uh, but on January 18, 2007, 
you know, we were walking road, we were walking foot patrol as we did every patrol out on an IED mission. And, you know, I look off to the right in an area called the Palm Groves. Um, you know, it's kind of like where a lot of the Iraqis and Haditha, they grew their vegetations and yeah. they had their farm life there and leaned up against this palm tree was a white bag. And, you know, many times when they mark IDs or they mark where their weapon cache caches are, are buried, it would, they'd have an indicator mm-hmm. or something that would just be very odd. And I saw that white bag leaned up against the palm tree. And as I turned around, you know, I didn't know what it could be, but I knew that it'd be something. Yep. And uh, I let every Marine know that was behind me and I turned back around and, and I looked down and in this ditch that lay perpendicular from the road I was on that uh, kind of traced the compound wall that I was passing. I saw the command wires that went right inside the pipe underneath the road. And by that time I was standing directly over top of it. And in the matter of seconds, it exploded directly underneath me. So it was basically, there was an, an Iraq, an Iraqi insurgent sitting in one of those homes, looking out the window, just waiting for that to happen, waiting for a Marine to walk close to the IED. And, and when I did, he pushed a button and it, it blew up directly underneath me. It sent shrapnel into both my eyes, losing vision right away. I was still conscious through it all. So like I could hear the Marines around me calling in for QRF to get me out of there to rush, you know, to get up to me. And uh, thankfully uh, no, the, the Marine to my left got injured, but no other Marines behind us got injured because we were dispersed so much. The compound wall took a lot of the, the shrapnel and the mm. fragments from the IED, and, um, but nobody got killed from it. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the bomb that exploded underneath me that was in a pipe underneath the road uh, removed my left leg and my right leg was badly damaged. And uh, as I laid there, I, I hear, I heard those Marines just running around and people always ask me, it's like, what, what was going through your mind? And everything happened so fast. Like there was yeah. not even time to think about it. It yeah. was more like, How do you respond? Yeah. Is it more like falling asleep? And like, this is a nightmare that nobody wants to have. And, you know, I, I remember looking back on that deployment and, you know, I looked to the American flag and, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, why did I serve? Why did I put myself in this position to go out and get in these firefights, to get in these engagements, to lose friends at such an early age. And you kept giving, you kept having those flashbacks of 9-11 and watching innocent Americans leap from the buildings. And you think about those Marines and the soldiers and sailors and airmen who raised their right hand to go defend freedom, defend, you know, this country that we all love to where another terrorist attack will never happen. You know, you look to your brother and your left and right, and you understand that, that you just love them. Yeah. You know, and you'd be willing to lay down your life for them as they would for you. And you understand that every compound that I went into, we always went to the roof, you know, and, and, and this is such a dangerous city, a dangerous time that where evil was surrounded us. But the one beautiful thing with being in that country is every morning and every evening when I'd look up, I'd always see some of the prettiest sunrises and sunsets. Mm. And it gave me the hope and courage to know that no matter whatever happened to me or my brother's, that God always looked out for us. Mm. Like God, even in this war torn city, God always painted that picture to where we looked up so we could look for him for assistance and for help and encouragement. And it gave us the strength to when we left that compound that we'd be okay. And, you know, you, you take these situations and yeah, I've dealt with bad days. I still deal with them. We all do. We all have struggles in our life, but I, if I wouldn't look down at that IED to see the last thing I'd ever see in my life, then the piece of metal and shrapnel would have went through my throat and <laughs> I wouldn't be here today. 
you know, although it took my legs and my vision, it didn't take my life, huh. you know, wow. and, um, and of course I, I didn't, I didn't know anything about what happened to me until three weeks later when I woke up in Bethesda, Maryland, you know, waking up in, to me in a foreign land at that time, you know, absolutely. You know, in my mind, you know, 10 minutes ago, I was in Iraq. Now here I am. Yeah. I got my dad, and my mom to my left and right. And, and did you I, understand the extent of your injury when you woke up, when you woke up there? Did you understand the extent when it happened? I didn't because the first thing that happened, like the phantom pains in my legs were so severe that I felt like I still had my feet. Yeah. And I had to get on to my dad because he would always whisper to my doctors or whoever would come in my hospital room. And for me, I, I thought I got kidnapped or captured. Oh, like that God. was because again, like, you know, five minutes ago, I felt like I was still in Iraq and, yeah. um, you know, and, and that's how severe those phantom pains were. I thought I was blindfolded on a bed, but, uh, when my dad told me I lost both my legs, I lost my vision, the vision I didn't care much for. Like I just mm. wanted my legs to grow back. Really? Um, you know, you see the stuff that happens on the news all the time, but you never expect it to happen to yourself. Of course. And, you know, I was only 20 years old. Like here yeah. I am thinking to myself, it's like, how am I going to live life like this? You know? And, um, you know, the only thing I ever wanted to do was be a Marine for 20 years, deploy over and over again. Like I knew the risk. I knew what could happen to me. And like, I was willing to lay down my life for this country or come home with my brothers, not be, be in the middle Mm -hmm. be wounded um so you know dealing with all that dealing with the depression not eating like i was i was already very skinny when i got home waking up from a coma but you know i I realized that if the bomb didn't kill me then then i could kill this is how i'm going to kill myself and angry at everybody who visited my hospital room and like i I just wanted to just lay there and die Mm. um so it was, it was tough at first, but, you know, through it all, like understanding that having the, the corpsman and the nurses who kept coming to my hospital room, kept pushing me, you know, and, and a lot of it is maybe a stubbornness or being hard headed, you know, <laughs> realizing that, okay, if I just do this and they will just be quiet and leave, Yes, you know, so, <laughs> but, you know, through it all, it's just like, they, they kept reminding me that at the end of the day, no matter what happens to me, that I'm still a Marine. Mm. And and what was my ultimate motivation and what my fight was from then on is those Marines that were still in Iraq who got me out of Iraq, got me out of that danger zone. Yeah. Get me alive, you know, and, and although they were still on their, their patrols and their missions in Iraq, like they, they didn't want me to come over here and just give up and quit because I'd be quitting on, all everything that they're doing right now, you know, yeah. and those who kept me alive, like, and it's just, uh, so I realized that, you know what, although 20 years old, no legs, no vision, like there is a life for me. And, and through it all, I'm going to live a life just like any normal person. You know, I might do things a little differently, but at the end of the day, I'm going to get it done. And, you know, having those Marines and the hospital staff come in my room, like I realized that, okay, maybe this is my ultimate purpose in life is to go out and share my story and come in hospital rooms with other severely wounded and let them know that no matter what injuries they face, struggles they deal with, like life isn't over. So, so I wanted to re-enlist in the Marines. Yeah. So, so you get this, this, 
I mean, to me, Matt and Matt, when I hear this, I'm like, wow, man, you're at the edge. You know, you're at the edge of, you know, do I go on? What do I do? And then you, you rally for your brothers and sisters um, and you want to re-enlist. <laughs> so how does, how do you re-enlist? Well, I knew one thing because the Marines kept coming to my room. So I'm like, okay, so they do have Marines serving in the hospitals. There you That's go. That's their job. But then there was another Marine who got injured a year before I did, who lost both his hands. And I forgot if it was General Conway, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, or President Bush come in his room and they asked him one of those questions like, how can I help you? And, and the Marine was, uh, I just want to stay in, in the Marine, sir. Yeah. He's like, he wanted to be a McMap, a martial arts instructor. And so I realized that, and they created this program called the Extended but Permanent Limited Duty Program. That is for Purple Heart recipients. They give you the opportunity to stay in the Marine Corps. They'll find a job for you. You know, you might not be deployable, but you're still promotable and all this stuff. So yeah. I knew that this program existed. I just realized now that I got to work my butt off <laughs> to get to the point where the Marine Corps and the Commandant will look at my reenlistment package and understand that, yes, he can still give us something. Mm. And and from then on, like I knew these objectives in my head that first I'm going to have to get strong enough. I'm going to have to learn how to walk on prosthetics. And then once I figure that out, then I'll move on to the, the, the vision part, the blind rehab center and learn what I can from emails to independent mobility to honestly just living on my own. Yeah. Because at that time I didn't have a wife or kids. I, I wasn't married. I, you know, my own, my ultimate focus was to stay in the Marines and yeah. no matter all the people who told me I couldn't do it or, or why stay in, why reenlist and all this, like I just used that as motivation and kept pushing forward. Um, and I knew each day, each step would, would get me to the, where I need to be and reenlist. And uh, one of the, the stories that I always share is, and I think it, it helped out a lot is just your, your mindset and your mentality, the attitude, and I, I understood when I first got hurt and, but when I realized that I could do this, yeah, that it's amazing how quickly you recover when you put your attitude in the right spot. Yeah. You know, when you start looking positively and in an optimistic way, instead of the negative way, things start working out for you. You start moving in that right direction. And I would always go into therapy in San Antonio and I'd roll in in my wheelchair. I'd have a smile on my face. I'd joke around. I'd get on the mat and I'd put my legs on and I'd stand up and I'd walk out. And my physical therapist stopped me one day and says, Matt, you don't see this, but every day when you come into therapy, your mind's in the right spot. You're happy. You're smiling. You do what you need to do. And you, you know, you put your legs on, you walk out. And these other amputees who are laying on the ground right now doing their core exercises, they see that. They yep. see your attitude and your, and how you go to work every day. And, and these guys and girls are probably so trying to figure out their own life. Yeah, of course. But if they look at a blind double MT coming into work every day, putting his legs on and not letting his injuries define who he is as a person, <laughs> then they use that as motivation as well, because, okay, if this blind double MT can do it, then I can do it. Hell yeah. And you Absolutely. know, using that motivation. And, and, you know, the one thing in the Marine Corps, we're always taught that lead by example mentality. It's not jumping in somebody's face and just yelling at them. It's just do, going to work every day, doing what you need to do, making that difference and inspiring others, you know? And, and one other story that, that come from my physical therapist, who is like a hero of mine, like learning how to walk on two prosthetics is tough. 
Yeah. Doing it with no vision is even tougher. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know the, the one, the frustrating part was like, I couldn't even walk a straight line. Like I was bouncing oh, off the walls. And of course, here I am frustrated trying to figure out like, how can I not walk a straight line? You know, and, you know, just four months ago, I was in Iraq, you know, walking down the streets, you know, doing all this stuff on my own and, you know, not wanting to trip and fall on these prosthetics. And my physical therapist stopped me and told me, Matt, whatever you do, just put one foot in front of the next and just walk. Mm-hmm. I'll never let you fall. And it's just, again, that encouragement, that that, that strength that he's going to be there no matter what by putting one foot in front of the next, because it's ultimately going to lead me to my next goal in life, my objective. You know, as I mentioned, you know, that one step could have been, okay, let's figure out the prosthetics. That next step is let's figure out the vision. And that next step could lead to reenlistment. Yeah. You know, because I realized that no matter where I was going in life, whatever that next step was, it could be into a wall or off a stage. But you know what? I'm going to keep moving forward until I find that door window because that's where opportunity is. And, you know, and, and through it all, like, I, I focus on, you know, these things because it helped me out. And, and, uh, once I finished the prosthetics, I went on to the, by that time, this was a, about a year, yeah year and a half into my injury. Like, cause I wasn't ready to do the whole vision stuff first. Like mm. I'm, I was, you know, although I didn't care much for losing my vision, I wanted my legs back. Like it took me a little bit longer to figure out, okay, now I'm ready to focus on being blind. Yeah. And uh, you know, so by June of 2008, I went to the Blind Rehab Center in Chicago, and and this was, you know, something new. But even even before I, I deployed and and before I got injured, like I've always been an independent person. Like I've always just done things on my own. So like even a year and a half after my injuries, I, I figured out how to like take care of myself. I figured yeah. out like although I was living with my mom at the time. I figured out how to get dressed on my own, shower, bath, shave, all this stuff. I figured out how to do on my own. So that wasn't so hard, but you know, the, the independent mobility part of it, getting out, using a white cane. Yeah. Um, learning, learning how to use a computer, a computer that talks back at me, you know? Absolutely. I mean, geez, talk about people, what people take for granted every day, just, you know, using your phone, using your computer. It's just sounds overwhelming. It is. And it was tough, you know, because it's like, you know, a regular computer, when you can see it, you know, what's going on. And if something doesn't work the way you want it to work, you can easily like just whether control alt delete, get out of there, you know, (laughs) and now you got all these keyboard commands. And um, I will say with my kids today, you know, they take sign language classes, but, you know, even learning to take Braille, how frustrating that could be. Um, Yeah. But, you know, I always joke and tell the story about like, you know, I took a carpentry class, a manual skills, woodworking class. And like, I knew I'd be there for so long that I took a, uh, I told the lady who I was working with, she was like, what do you want to make while you're in here? And I'm like, let's make a birdhouse, you know? And, and I always joke because I'm like that table saw with vision is very intimidating, but when you have no vision, you're making oh like God. a little one inch cut. Oh yeah. yeah that's pretty scary. <laughs> you know, but. It's terrifying. <laughs> But I think the, the final program when I was in Chicago is that they kind of put you in this makeshift department. You got to write bills. You got to uh, cook. You basically live in on your own and everything that you've learned through this, uh, your blind rehab program. Now, now this is your final test. You got to go grocery shopping on your own. But oh. they also take you from the blind rehab center, which is West Chicago in December when I was going through it. You had to take the, the, the bus 
down to the train station, go downtown, do a loop around a, a city block and, and go back to the blind rehab center. And you're doing all this on your own. Like you oh, have wow. your mobility yeah. with you, but he can't direct you at all. You know, he's basically just there. Yep. Um, and that was the final program and, or that was the final task. And, you know, once I, I left there in December, I realized that, you know, 2009 was approaching, like I've done a lot of the rehab. I've kind of completed the first two steps and, and now it's just put my reenlistment packet forward and, and, and move on to see, see what happens. So did you get accepted? And I did, you know, so I saw, I did the baton death <laughs> march in 2009 and I looked at my physical therapist that walked with me. And I yeah. Wait, really quick. Like, what is, what, what is the death march? Cause that's a very intimidating name, but what is it? So in, in world war two, uh, right after Pearl Harbor, um, there was a lot of the, the soldiers, uh, Philippine soldiers who are allies during the time. They were all stationed down there. And when the Japanese, uh, they pretty much invaded the islands and captured all these Americans and Filipinos. And they made them walk 80 some miles in the, the hot sun. And, and uh, you know, if anybody would stop, anybody would even try to get water, then they would basically execute them or kill them right then and right. there. And so in, in, and this baton death march takes place in white sands, New Mexico. And, and a lot of the soldiers were New Mexico national guardsmen oh, yeah. that were stationed in the Philippines during this time. And they honor them every year. And in 2009, I, I forgot how many there were, but 10 to 15. But when I did in 2019, there were only three survivors left. Wow. So, um, so, and, and actually when I did it in 2009, Going back to 2008, I, you know, the, the Center for the Intrepid in San Antonio would always do this march. And yeah. I put my foot in my mouth because I told my physical therapist that I would do it the Perfect. next year. Now and you're committed. signed me up for it. Yes. So getting, getting back from the Blind Rehab Center in December, going home for the Christmas break. So I didn't really get back to San Antonio until January. And, and to be truthfully honest, like I didn't really walk on my legs all day until I got to the Blind Rehab Center. So you know, brand new at just keeping my legs on all day. Yeah. And uh, so we, he tells me about it. So we start walking and training oh, up man. for it. And, but I looked at my physical therapist right when I started and I told her that when I'm done with this, I'm putting my medical board in and um, cause I, I had to do my medical board first. Yep. And once you get that back, you get three, um, three choices. You could either accept your ratings or you could do a reboard to where they re-rate you because you don't think you were high enough. Or you could re-enlist. Mm. And, you know, of course, mine was 100%, but I re-enlisted. I chose choice three. And that was in August of 09. And by March 26th, 2010, I got the call saying that my re-enlistment package got approved. So cool. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was pretty cool because uh, the, the assistant commandant, General Amos, I ran into him at D.C. and um, for an event. And he walked up to me. He's like, so, so Matt... Uh, have you heard anything about your reenlistment packet? And I said, sir, the only thing, the last word I've heard about it is that it's on the commandant's desk. He's like, oh, okay, let me check on that. And by that Monday morning, I get a call saying it got approved. I'm like, so he went back and spoke to his boss and got it done. But, uh, but on April 7th, I, I did my reenlistment ceremony. I was the first blind WMT in the history of the Marine Corps to do that. And, wow. and, and the Marine Corps asked me where I wanted to go. And I told him Wounded Warrior Battalion, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And, and what was that like, man? Give me, give me something here. Um, 
You know, it was, uh, to me, I think the best part of, of staying in the Marine Corps is being able to kind of not be forced out medically because yeah. I feel like if I was forced out medically, I, my whole mindset and mentality would have probably been in a different place today. But giving that opportunity to call it quits on my own, you know, yeah, understanding that's, that's that, okay, maybe this, this chapter is concluding and it's time to move on to something else. But, you know, it's interesting how life works and how God throws you in all these detours um, because that first weekend I moved to North Carolina, I ran into this lady, this beautiful lady who had two wonderful kids. And, you know, two years later, she became my wife. That's right. <laughs> and it's funny how I always joke around. I tell people um, it was love at first sight to throw a little vision <laughs> thing in there, you know. But, <laughs> you know, like when I was moving from San Antonio to, to North Carolina, like I was not looking to settle down at all, get married. Like my of course. focus was being a Marine. And I met her day two of being in North Carolina. And it, it it just clicked. Like, you know, when they always say that, like, you know, when, you know, you know, when you had that feeling, you know, and, and although like, like we were good friends at first, she helped us get situated. But then a year later I proposed to her at Myrtle beach. Awesome. And then two years later we got married at Emerald Isle, North Carolina. But, you know, just being that Marine, putting that uniform on every day and understanding that like all those heroic marines all those heroic soldiers who wear the uniform to serve a country you know just to take pride in that and and you know my wife always tells me the one thing that I, that she loved about me the most when she first met me is when it comes to putting my uniform on like it was me down mm -hmm. on the ground every morning re-roll my sleeves to put my chevrons on to put my uniform together yeah you know and 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 i think i understood it more after my injuries but just to, to take pride and and serving as a United States Marine, you know, and, and not only deploying, but, you know, early on in my recovery, it's what helped save my life is just being a Marine. And, you know, in 2011, I had a chance to go back to Iraq on a closure trip. Oh yeah. And, and I took an American flag with me that I bought in Hawaii before I deployed and it, it flew in Iraq with me. And, you know, it, it went through every hospital room I was in and they let me fly over one of Saddam's palaces. And on a very calm day, I stood underneath that flag as it got to the top of the flagpole and, and I saluted it. And then all of a sudden the wind picked up and I could just hear that flag whipping in the wind. And I realized then that, you know, maybe this time as an active duty Marine is coming to a conclusion. Like my ultimate goal was to deploy over and over again. And I can't do that no more, but, but the one thing I can do, and I think my ultimate purpose in us, why God kept me alive is to go out and share my story, to live life to the fullest, to teach others to go beyond the bare minimal, you know, and, you know, life is, you only live once. And I almost lost my life on one wrong step, but you know what, you got to take advantage of all the opportunities that we have, you know, on this great country, this great net, this great earth, this, this country that we live in. And the one thing with being a Marine is you're always a Marine and that title will go with me for the rest of my life. And, and back home, like I was starting school, we were starting a family and, and I just realized then that, that maybe it's my time now to call it quits. Yeah. You know, I served for two more years, but you know what, that two more years gave me that it, it helped me realize that, okay, like a career Marine is not going to happen. Mm. But you know what? I could share my stories and I can continue living my life and, you know, I wake up every day as I'm a United States Marine, although I don't shave now, but I, you know, every morning when I wake <laughs> up, I understand that, you know, that God doesn't give us that perfect path. Like, you know what, it's my patrol each and every day. 
to go to go conquer the you know the adversities that has thrown my way yeah no matter what it is in life and it's uh, having that marine corps mentality that mindset just always keep pushing forward never quitting and you know the lead by example mentality you know, going out, inspiring and motivating others who are struggling, who are having bad days. And it doesn't matter if you're in the military or if you're a civilian, whoever you are, like we all have bad days and we all have struggles. Yeah. The no legs, no vision. That's, that's what's helped get me through. Yeah. You know, it could be anything in life, but the most important part is that no problem. And it's just understanding and accepting that, that adversity makes us stronger. Well, let me ask you this here as kind of a wind down, um, you know, final question, Matt, and thanks for obviously carving time. It's, I, I love just hearing your story again and hanging out. Um, and thank you for everything that you've, um, you do for the, for the country and for, for us. Um, so what's your best tip on handling adversity? You know, obviously you've had a, a scale of magnitude greater than most people have in their life. Um, but what, what is your, you know, what do you, what do you fall back on? How do you, how do you manage it when it comes up again? Or when you do have those bad days, what, what tips do you have for people? I think for me personally, the first and foremost is like the Marine Corps mentality and the Marine Corps model says it the best. Semper Fidelis, always faithful, faithful to your God, to your family, to your country. And, you know, having that support system and having those in your life that when you have those bad days and you struggle and, 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 you know, not wanting to get up in the morning, but, I look at my wife and I look at our kids and I'm like, you know what? I'm fighting for them now, mm-hmm. you know, and I always tell people that January 18, 2007 is always in my mind. Like, yeah. I'm never going to forget that. I go to bed every night and I pray thinking that, man, maybe if I can wake up and see my wife and kids for the first time, yeah, like that, I just want to see them. But you know what? I wake up and I still see darkness and I go through my routines and I still put my prosthetic legs on. But you know, in those moments of when I start questioning what's my purpose in life and why, did God put me down this detour? You know, it's always my nine-year-old daughter and, you know, one of our kids that walks in the room, you know, and says, I love you, daddy, or come play with me. <laughs> Somebody asked me once, they says, when you, when you're in those dark places, where, what do you do? And I told him, I get in my wheelchair, I stand up and I walk in my daughter's room and I get in the floor and I'll play Barbies with her because that gets my mind in the right spot, you know? And my daughter asked me one day when I was giving her a bath, she says, daddy, what happened to your eyes? Yeah. And I told her that, you know what, you're my vision now. I see my life through you. And that's my ultimate focus, you know, my family. And, you know, understanding that, yeah, you know, life is not perfect. But then I look at like the people I surround myself with, the go-getters, the like-minded individuals who, when I struggle, like I'm not afraid to pick up the phone and give them a call. And, you know, I might not tell them that I'm struggling or having a bad day, but just hearing their voice. Yeah. Puts me in a better spot, you know, and, and I've, I've, I'm guilty. I've had toxic people come in my life and, yeah. and, you know, pushing them away. It was the most important and the most satisfying thing in the world. Yep. And, you know, understanding, as I mentioned earlier about living a normal life and going out doing things that I love to do, not letting these injuries dictate my life or define me as a person. Like I was hunting last week. I'm going <laughs> to go work out in the gym going to go push the sled, do pull-ups, whatever, you know, yeah. but it's just living that normal life. And, you know, unfortunately, like my injuries are here, but you know what? They don't slow me down or stop me. 
Brother, thank you for spending the time with us today, with me and, and the audience today. Man, I, I am so thankful for getting to know you over the time now, and I can't wait to have more interaction and more engagement as things continue on. Um, but man, I just want to thank you again for just spending some time with us today, man. After Thanksgiving too, um, what a great, what a great session, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And, uh, you know, anytime I look forward to staying in touch with you, not only on the podcast, but as a friend, and hopefully we can get to more events together. I love it. If you guys are looking for ways to connect up with Matthew, obviously use the Google, no legs, no vision, no problem. And you'll find Matthew Bradford running around, pushing sleds, you know, being a stud. So Matthew, thank you. Uh, for everyone else, we'll see you on the next episode of the Modeling Podcast. Mikey, play us out.